You're listening to the Bible for Normal People, the only God-ordained podcast on the internet. I'm Pete Enns. And I'm Jared Bias. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of the podcast. Before we get started... Just a reminder, folks, Jonah for Normal People is out, and you need to read this and buy it and give it to everybody you know. That's right. You can just go to Amazon, wherever you get books, and get Jonah for Normal People. It's part of our series. It's part of our series. So, we have Genesis out, we have Exodus out, Uh, and and now now it's Jonah. Yeah. And yeah, Yeah. but I think it's fun. Jonah is, again, one of my favorite books, and I try to bring in critical scholarship and some of the understandings, but also a personal spin on it, because I think, as you'll see in the book of Jonah itself, I think it invites personal response, discussion, conversation, argument, and so I try to bring some of that in as well. Okay. Today, you're in for a real treat. We're talking about the most juicy topic. Yes. What you really need to know about the Dead Sea Scrolls. The what? The, the Dead, Dead Sea, sea Scrolls. Yeah. And Amen. we have with us no one better to talk about it than Sydney White Crawford. Yeah, she's wonderful. Uh, Sydney spent most of her teaching career at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, and her main area is Dead Sea Scrolls. Also like Second Temple Judaism, of course, because that's part of it, and like Hebrew language and things like that. But her area that she's focused on is Dead Sea Scrolls. But you can and tell by how she talks about it. Yeah. Yeah, she really. Knows her stuff. Just off the top of her head stuff. Yeah. So anyway, it was a great discussion about the implications of this monumental, transformative manuscript find for our understanding of the Hebrew Bible, the Christian Bible, and indeed, to a certain extent, Christianity in its context in the first century. And it's surprising how recent it was. I mean, my dad was born in 1947. Really? Okay. So, the same year. My house was made in 1947. So, we're talking not, I mean, when we think about manuscripts and all of these things, we kind of think, well, all that got discovered a long time ago, and now we're building on all these things. But this Mm -hmm. is recent discoveries that, you know, Sydney tells us at the end of the episode has only recently impacted English translations. Exactly right. Yeah. And how profound they are, again, is just... When they were discovered, people said, we have to rethink a few things here that we thought we understood. And who knows what the next manuscript pile is and where it's going to be found and how that might broaden our understanding. Let's put it this way. It broadened our understanding, changing some things, but definitely broadened it. And that's what scholars love, broadening and understanding more. Mm -hmm. All right. Let's hear from Sydney. We have to remember that all of these manuscripts were hand copied by trained scribes. And if you have enough of them, you can get within 50 years. We don't have any dated text, but we can give these relative dates by the study of the handwriting. Well, it's that time, folks. It's time for us to talk about microdosing. Microdose gummies deliver perfect entry-level doses of THC that help you feel just the right amount of good. Microdosing can help you get into a relaxed, focused zone easier and stay there longer. It has benefits for workout recovery, sleep, anxiety relief, boosting creativity, and even pain relief. You know, Jared, I have a really good friend of mine who saw that I was taking microdose gummies and she said, can I try some? And so I gave her some of the sativa strand and she said it has made such a difference for her at work. And just in general, just feeling more alert and more focused. And it's quite amazing. So get 30% off your first order plus free shipping today at microdose.com. Promo code normal people. That's one word. It's available nationwide. That's microdose.com. Promo code normal people for 30% off and free shipping. Microdose.com. Promo code normal people. Introducing Bluehost Cloud ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. 
Well, yeah, okay, so I think it's worthwhile giving the listeners just a the quick scoop on, okay... What are the Dead Sea Scrolls? Yeah. The Dead Sea Scrolls refer to a collection of manuscripts that were found in various find sites around the Dead Sea from above Jericho all the way down to Masada. But what most people mean when they say that are the scrolls found in the 11 caves around the site of Qumran, which is in the northwest corner of the Dead Sea, south of Jericho. And these were the original scrolls that were found beginning in 1947. So they're on their 75th anniversary right now. Happy birthday. Yes, exactly. Happy birthday to the scrolls. (laughs) And they're important because they are the largest group of Hebrew manuscripts, Jewish manuscripts ever found in the Holy Land. I mean, really, except for the Qumran scrolls, all our finds of written material are very small. A lot of them are just inscriptions on ostraca or stone, potsherds or stone. And a lot of them are are business documents, bills of sale and wills, and which are important for reconstructing life. But the Qumran scrolls are literary texts, both the literature of ancient Israel that we think of, think of as the Bible, but also the literature of the Second Temple period, the period between the Babylonian exile and the fall of the Second Temple in the year 70 to the Romans. So, for New Testament studies, these scrolls overlap with the lifetime of Jesus and then the beginnings of the early church. So, it's hard to overestimate their importance. Mm -hmm. Well, if we can maybe situate this dating, because I don't know if, if people maybe understand the significance of that. Before 1947 and the discovery of these scrolls, what would have been the earliest written down form of the of the of the Hebrew scriptures that we would have had we have the complete in Hebrew the complete manuscripts the earliest are from the 9th century the Aleppo codex and the 10th century the St Petersburg codex so that's a we, difference of and then the Dead Sea Scrolls are from what time period because I think that's important to name that gap that we really we stretched a, a significant gap with the discovery of these scrolls We sure did. The uh, earliest manuscripts, which are all biblical, come from the 3rd century BCE, so say around 250. And the latest come from, say, between 50 and 75 CE or AD. So, it's really almost a thousand-year gap. Mm -hmm. Now, we do have manuscripts in Greek of the Hebrew Bible that are from the third and fourth centuries, but they're in Greek. And so, this is the actual Hebrew text that we now have. Yeah, it's taking us way, way back. Not to the beginning, but, you know, much closer than we had been back in the, yes. you know, the medieval period. So, um, yeah. So, the who, who were, just briefly, uh, like, why did this community at Qumran even exist? And what were they doing sticking their writings in caves? (laughs) Well, most scholars identify the people who lived at Qumran with one of the kind of wings or movements within Judaism that are identified by the Jewish historian Josephus and the Jewish philosopher Philo, who talk about the Pharisees, well known from the New Testament, the Sadducees, also well-known from the New Testament, and the Essenes, not mentioned in the New Testament. But it looks like the people who owned the scrolls, collected them, and stuck them in the caves were the Essenes. And we can be not ever 100% certain, but it's the best identification given what the scrolls say about the movement, the Jewish movement, where they're located, and the lack of other uh, other kinds of literature. So, they were Essenes, 
The Essenes seem to have lived all up and down Judea. Both Philo and Josephus say there were about 4,000 of them. Certainly, they weren't all living at Qumran. But Qumran seems to be a kind of central location for them for collecting and storing their precious manuscripts. Why they chose Qumran is kind of a mystery because we don't know who owned the property, who gave it to them, you know, that kind of question. But they arrived in somewhere between 175 BCE, and they built a settlement there that lasted until it was destroyed by the Romans in 68 CE. And their main occupation there seems to have been collecting, copying, studying the literature of their sect, which included the biblical literature. Okay, so they were, the the Essenes were a sect, I I guess we can say that, and this Qumran community, sect is not a bad word, by the way, right? So, they were a division, you know, of of the time, and this community at Qumran, they were, is it fair to say they were separatists from, let's say, mainstream Judaism? Yeah, they put up boundaries between themselves and other parts of Judaism. And I think that it's really important to realize that the arguments that they were engaged in with other movements within Judaism were all about how to obey the precepts of the Torah. And the Pharisees had one set of traditions, the Sadducees had another, and the Essenes had yet another. And of course, they overlapped. Nobody disagreed that you should observe the Sabbath. But what that meant and how you were to fulfill that commandment could become an area of controversy, as it can in Judaism today. Mm -hmm. So, that seems to be that that's the main reason that they they put up these boundary markers because they didn't think that other Jews were fulfilling the Torah as they should be. Mm-hmm. All right, so let's get into the manuscripts a little bit because that's what this community is known for: this copying of manuscripts that take us back a thousand years before you know the earliest complete Bibles we had in the medieval period. So, uh, how? Let, let's just talk about some of them. There, there are manuscripts of the Bible. There are some other manuscripts there too. They also have commentaries on the Bible, and maybe we can just tease out some information about those groups of manuscripts and how they have impacted, and in some cases, actually, I think it's fair to say, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you agree? Revolutionized aspects of our study of ancient Judaism and early Christianity. Absolutely. When I think of when I started working on the scrolls, and I won't say how long ago that was, (laughs) but it's not 75 years. (laughs) But in any case, um, the, the difference in how we look at things like the history of the text of the Hebrew Bible and the process of of forming the canon of scripture has really changed enormously. And it's owing to what we've learned from the scrolls. So, just as, you know, a kind of overview, about 25% of the Qumran manuscripts are biblical, and there are about 900 manuscripts overall. So, 25% of that they were found in all the caves where manuscripts were found. So, in caves one, two, three, etc. They were found in mainly in the Hebrew language, but in what we call Aramaic square script, which is the, the script that if you study the Bible today and you're using a printed Bible, that's the script you see. But they also had it in what's called Paleo-Hebrew script, which is a kind of descendant of ancient Israelite script, and they had it in Greek, too. So, they were serious biblical scholars, these people. The manuscripts of the Bible range in age from, 
the third century BCE, about 250, to between 50 and 75 AD. And the, the most popular books were the Psalms and Deuteronomy. So the worship life of the community and the study of the Torah, I think is the best way to think about that. Mm -hmm. How how do you date manuscripts? I mean, you mentioned the dates and and those are agreed upon dates in, in the academic community. But, you know, when you're staring at an old manuscript you got out of a cave, how can you tell? Right, right. Well, the first thing is to say that we have to remember that all of these manuscripts were hand copied, right? That seems kind of obvious, but it, that's the first statement you need to make. And then they were hand copied by trained scribes. So people who literally went to school to learn to write. And so they had beautiful handwriting and they had very uniform handwriting that only changed slowly. And so by the way they form their letters and the shape of the letters, you can establish a typology of scripts that you can say this script is older than script A is older than script B, which is older than script C. And if you have enough of them, you can get within 50 years. So we don't have any dated texts where it says, you know, in the fifth year of the reign of Herod the Great. We don't have anything like that. But we can give these relative dates by the study of the handwriting, which is called paleography. In addition, some of the scrolls have been carbon-14 dated. And the carbon-14 dates match the paleography dates closely. Mm. And so we can be sure. If I say a, a manuscript was written in around 250 BCE, it could have been written in 250. It could have been written in 225. It could have been written in 200. I can't be that exact. So these are approximate dates, but I can certainly look at a manuscript and know if it's a third century manuscript or a first century manuscript. So, I think I might ask the, the obvious question, because if someone's hearing this and they're thinking, okay, before 1947, our earliest manuscripts were from the medieval period, and then we find these scrolls in a cave that have texts from a thousand years earlier of the biblical text, were there any surprises in terms of differences, or was the, the manuscript that we had in the Middle Ages fairly faithful and consistent with what was written down a thousand years before? It depends on the book, because we, we sometimes forget that the Bible is a collection of books. And so, it's, it's the, um, each book has a different history. Um, so, let me take Psalms as an example. Right, We think of Psalms as a book in the Bible with 150 Psalms in a certain order. But when we look at the manuscripts from Qumran, what we see is that that order of Psalms wasn't yet finally established, and the number of Psalms wasn't quite finally established. So, that among the 36 Psalms manuscripts that we have, you have different orders, some what people might think of as extra psalms. So, they hadn't, it hadn't gelled or solidified into the form that we know it now. And so, that tells us that at this time, the third to the first centuries BCE, the book of Psalms hadn't reached its final form it was still a kind of work in progress. So, that's an example. And it was a surprise, right? No one expected that. Another example is the question of variance in manuscripts. And variance simply means differences between different copies. And 
when you have handwritten manuscripts, of course, you're going to get errors, right? I mean, if you think about when you copy something by hand, which no one does anymore, but when you used to, <laughs> um, it, you would make a mistake and maybe you would erase the mistake and correct it or you missed the mistake and it was there. So you get mistakes, but you also get things like updating where it would be like if we wanted to update the language of Shakespeare and make it more comprehensible or the way that Bible translations will update language. So in the King James Version, where it says in John 1, the darkness comprehendeth it not, and it really means encompassed or overcome, but we think comprehend means no. <laughs> so that language needed to be updated. They would do the same thing, substitute a more common word for a less common word, put in explanatory notes. Sometimes material would drop out, and suddenly we find manuscripts that have longer texts. So all of this is new, and we the word that we use to think about this is that the Bible, the biblical books, their texts were still fluid. They had the shape that we recognize. So if you think of Genesis, it starts with creation, it ends with the Joseph narratives, and in between you have all the, the patriarchal narratives. That shape was set by the time we have the Qumran manuscripts, but the details of the words were not fixed as they are now. People had to wrap their heads around that, and it took mm -hmm. a while. I, I think some people, perhaps more than others, I mean, not, not trying to be funny, but many people are committed to a very early and fixed canon and to hear that there's something very close to the time of Jesus and probably extending into Jesus's lifetime that exhibits this fluidity of the texts. And um, I always found that fascinating teaching seminary students many years ago, trying to explain that and watching their eyes pop out of their heads. But that's, right. that's the way it is. So, I mean, it gave us, in other words, you know, the further back we go, th this is the assumption, the further back we go in time, the more uniformity we're going to see and the more sort of a perfection of the text because we're getting closer to the original author. But the exact opposite happened in a sense. That's right. Right? We, we right. see more we, diversity. We get, we right? get messier and messier. And we've really stopped thinking about an author. Like there was no author of Deuteronomy or Genesis. There was oral tradition that's all texts, you know, literacy, the rate of literacy in the ancient world was very low, maybe three to 5%, if that. And so people, people had much better memorization skills than they do now. And that's how the cultural tradition was passed on. And then as it began to be written, these texts took shape. But we can't say there was an author who wrote it. Right? We can say there were scribes who shaped it. Over a long period of time. Over a long period of time, exactly. And that's, again, not to put words in anyone's mouth, but that is what scribes do, right? They, they don't just copy. There's always an, uh, there's an evolution or development of these texts over time, which was not antithetical to a respect for the tradition. Absolutely. In fact... The scribes had enormous respect for the tradition and saw themselves as passing along the tradition, making it a living tradition for their own time, not a dead letter from the past, but a living tradition for their own time. Mm -hmm. And I think that that's really important to realize. In some ways, you know, today with electronic texts and things like wikis and things that can be changed 
we're in a period that's more similar to the ancient yes. world than we were when there was just the printing press. <laughs> what I do think that's important because in certain religious traditions, exactly what we said was we're afraid of more diversity in the past and we have this idea that the most faithful or respectful way to handle the Bible is to crystallize it, make no change. There is no evolution. There's no development. And that just hasn't always historically been the case. That it, for scribes, it actually was part of respect. It was part of what it, this sacred responsibility was to pass it along, almost like a midwife to the next generation. That's right. That's a really nice phrase, Jared, sacred responsibility. And I think they felt that, that very strongly. And sometimes you do get a sense of these scribes working with the text and, and trying to not, not perfect it because that, that would be wrong, but trying to, to make it more accessible or to make sure that people looking at the text would, or people who were hearing it for the most part, would hear it in all its, its glory, really. Mm-hmm. Did you know Fast Growing Trees is the biggest online nursery in the U.S. with more than 10,000 different kinds of plants and over 2 million happy customers in the U.S.? They have everything you could possibly want, like fruit trees, palm trees, evergreens, houseplants, and so much more. Whatever you're interested in, they have it for you. Find the perfect fit for your climate and space. Fast Growing Trees makes it easy to order online, and your plants are shipped directly to your door in one to two days. And along with that, Their 30-day Alive and Thrive guarantee is amazing. They offer free plant consultation forever. We got our bushes in, and you can tell I don't know what I'm talking about because I just call them bushes, but we got them in last night. And Fast Growing Trees knows what they're called. Exactly. That's the whole point. It comes with this placard that tells you exactly what to do like you're in fifth grade, which is the exact instruction level that I needed. And it was very easy to follow. We loved the process. This spring, they have their best deals online up to half off on select plants and other deals. And listeners to our show get an additional 15% off their first purchase when using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. That's an additional 15% off at FastGrowingTrees.com using the code NORMALPEOPLE at checkout. FastGrowingTrees.com, code NORMALPEOPLE. Offer is valid for a limited time. Terms and conditions may apply. A calling is a powerful thing. It's a very strong belief that there is something bigger for you. It's about who you are and where you're going in life. You may be in college, you may be halfway through a career, but you want something different. There's a place for you at Union Presbyterian Seminary, where students are prepared for a call to ministry. At Union, you will find a diverse community. You'll find students from different denominations and professors who will listen to you and challenge you. You'll find people who help you find your own path. You'll find a school where financial realities matter. Union offers generous financial aid, And it meets you where you are with three different platforms for learning, residential, online, and hybrid. You'll find a world-class faculty who will invest in you, a community long after you graduate that supports you and equips you for service and for leadership. Safwat Marzuk, who has been on the podcast here on The Bible for Normal People, is a faculty at Union Presbyterian Seminary and is slated to write one of our upcoming commentaries. It's no secret, if you're a listener of the podcast, how much Pete and I have relied on our seminary education and how much that has shaped our view of the world and all of our work here at the Bible for Normal People. It's your call. Respond with Union Presbyterian Seminary. To learn more, go to upsem.edu or email admissions at upsem.edu. So, okay, while we're on this topic, I'd love for you to talk a bit about the the textual evidence from the Dead Sea Scrolls for two books in particular, or just pick one, Isaiah and or Jeremiah. Well, Jeremiah is is kind of the easiest to talk about because it's it's so clear. There were in the ancient world prior to the the fall of the temple, so in the lifetime of Jesus, uh, two forms of the book of Jeremiah in circulation. One and we knew this prior to the discovery of the scrolls, because one form is found in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scripture that for centuries was the Bible of Christians. And the other form in the Masoretic text 
the Hebrew text that is the the heir of the rabbinic Bible, and so the canonical text in Judaism. And for our English Bibles, too. Yes, yes, now. So, that the Masoretic text of Jeremiah is about 5% longer than the Greek text, and the chapters are in a different order. And I had a funny experience with this once in a classroom. We were reading Jeremiah, and I had a student who was Greek Orthodox, and so he had an English Bible that was an Orthodox Bible, a, a translation of the Septuagint. And I asked him to read a certain chapter, and he started in, and everybody's looking around because that wasn't the chapter. And I realized what had happened. So it was a wonderful <laughs> lesson right there <laughs> to explain, you know, even in the, at that time, I think it was the 20th century, maybe the early 21st, but in any case, what, what was going on. And the interesting thing about these Jeremiah manuscripts is that they're all in Hebrew, and they all were found in Cave 4, so they're side by side. So they're not saying, oh, this is the real Jeremiah and this is the fake one. They're saying, these are both forms of Jeremiah that we can read and benefit from. So just just to be clear, the... At Qumran was found two Hebrew versions of Jeremiah. Exactly. Right. One yes. of which was used probably to translate it into Greek. That's one tradition. And the other one that became this, this Masoretic text, this more official text of Judaism, which is still with us, you know, 2,000 years later. That's exactly right. That's inconvenient. <laughs> Why would they have two? I th- I gathered they didn't think that. And I think exactly. that's one of the things that we had to get our minds around. They didn't think it was inconvenient. They probably thought it was great <laughs> that you could read and benefit from different forms of the sacred text and learn different things. And And that's one of the things that they did that, again, would make us kind of nervous. They would take what we might think of as the classical literature of ancient Israel, the stuff that they inherited from their ancestors, and they would take it and create whole new works that, you know, sometimes lengthened some themes and built on them and changed things. And this was especially true of the narratives found in the Pentateuch the ancestral narratives, the Exodus narratives, even in the legal sections, that they would do this. And we have a lot of manuscripts from the scrolls that do this. The Book of Enoch, the Book of Jubilees, the Temple Scroll, and they're all what what have been called rewritten Bible. That's kind of awkward, but we, we think of it as rewriting this classical literature to create new works. Yeah, not canonical works, so to speak, but... but No, but interestingly, Enoch and Jubilees are canonical in the Ethiopian Orthodox Church. We have to keep remembering that there are different canons. Well, that's... I I wanted to ask a question about that, because, again, we maybe make the distinction. I'm not sure if there was anything like this at Qumran, where... I feel like there's this, like, well, the Bible is sort of in this glass case, and it can't be touched, and it's what it is. And then, sure, we have these other we have these other books outside of that. But in, in Qumran, when we have these, you said only 20-25% of the, of the scrolls were made up of, of biblical texts, and then you had all these other texts. Was there any sense in which, do we know if they sort of kept the, quote, biblical books that we think of as separate and more sacred than these other texts? Or were they all just kind of in there together and there wasn't this idea of, well, these are the primary ones and then the, we're, we're creating secondary works based on these and they're not as important as these other ones? Was there any kind of hierarchy? I'd say actually it's kind of somewhere in the middle. It's really clear that the five books of the Pentateuch, the Torah, were the, were the sacred texts bar none, right? That was, and then you had the prophets, and they were scripture. But then in the writings, Ruth, we have in two copies, there's no indication that they thought Ruth was special in any way. 
I, it's a nice story, but they didn't treat it in any way that indicates they thought this is scripture. They have more copies of Enoch and Jubilees than they do of Chronicles, Ezra, Nehemiah, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. So, what did they think of those books? I don't think you can say for sure that they thought of them as scripture, as the Bible. Well, it's and they may have thought of Enoch and Jubilees as scripture. It's interesting, though, that the, the Jewish Bible we have today, like if you go get a Jewish Bible off the bookshelf, say at Barnes & Noble, the Tanakh, and you have it, they, they, it's already still situated, or it's still situated in that same way, where you have the Torah and then the Nevi'im and the Ketuvim. They have the, mm -hmm. the first five books, then they have the prophets, then they have the writings to end it out. It's almost like they've preserved this almost concentric circle. And I don't know if a lot of Jewish readers today would, would say, well, the Ketuvim, the, the writings are less important than the Torah. But in, I think in some circles, they might say that, where it is almost this concentric circle tradition right they it, i'm not sure they would say it's it's let i mean i don't think they would use that language but they would say that the torah is central to our understanding of ourselves as jews and that means the torah and all the interpretation that goes along with it mishnah talmud tosefta everything else so that torah in judaism is more of a living growing tradition than a fixed set of books. The fixed set of books are there, but it is a little different. Christianity, I think maybe we can blame Martin Luther, <laughs> who said sola scriptura. And so while Christians clearly do interpret the biblical text, sometimes they almost don't want to admit it, right? They just open it right. and read it. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, let's, you know, I, to sum up, I guess, the manuscript evidence of Qumran, at the very least, it brings to the table questions of canon and, and questions of just the state of texts in the ancient world. And the bottom line is that it's not more clear. It's, from our point of view, from our expectations as modern people, it's less clear. But maybe we need to think about it just in a different way, not about not transferring rather our concerns, our questions onto an ancient people, but just saying, listen, here's the way that it was. Maybe they weren't so hung up on things like we are. Right. Let's let the okay. scrolls speak. And I think one way that this is really difficult for us to do is to remember that at the time the scrolls were copied, the Bible, the way we think of it, didn't exist. Mm -hmm. Even in its physical form of a bound book, a codex, these scrolls were all separate books, right? You could put them on a shelf, you could mix them up and have them in different orders, you read them separately. I mean, they, they obviously knew all of this literature, but they, it wasn't in this fixed form that that we think of it as, mm -hmm. right? We, we shelve our Bibles in libraries separately than, than we shelve commentaries, for example. Right, right. right. You know? Well, let's, I want to make sure we get to this a little bit too. The, uh, another group of, man, uh, of, of writings among the Dead Sea community are these commentaries. We have a few of them. Uh, mm -hmm. On biblical books, like maybe the most, the best known is the commentary in Habakkuk, and these uh, these bring to light other kinds of issues. I maybe maybe we can say hermeneutical issues, but also things that might help us see something about maybe the rise of Christianity. That might be that might be more than we can say from some of these writings but let let's talk about these commentaries that are found in the dead sea scrolls yeah they are very interesting we call them pesharim from the hebrew word pesher because the way these commentaries were set up they would quote a verse from the biblical text and then they would say pishro its interpretation is and then they would give a very contemporary interpretation so that they weren't, you know, I think 
it, Pete, when you teach or I teach, one of the things we emphasize is what was the original context? What was the historical context of this of this writing? They weren't interested in that. <laughs> they were interested in what, how, what the, they, they believed that the text, that the, the scriptural text spoke about specific events in the life of their community. And that's what they were interested in. And they interpreted these prophets in that way. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And it's funny, it's they're very what we would think of as minor books, Habakkuk, Nahum, books like that. I mean, usually we don't go and read Nahum very often, mm-hmm. <laughs> but they did. And they will use they'll use kind of fake names for figures. They talk about the wicked priest and the teacher of righteousness mm-hmm. and the wrathful lion. And it's been like a big puzzle for scholars to try and figure out who they're talking about. And the liar. The liar, yes. Some bug called the, the liar. spouter of lies. <laughs> yeah. Now, um, give us a little bit more context because, like, why did they interpret these biblical texts in terms of their own community? Were they somewhat of an apocalyptic eschatological kind of community or they certainly seem to be from what the kind of texts they were reading they're very fond of daniel for example and that they were producing they have texts called the war rules that talk about the final battle at the end of days they have visionary texts like the visions of amram the father of moses that talk about the last days. So, in a sense, they are in the same kind of basic milieu as the early Christians were, because early Christians were convinced they were living in the last days as well. And uh, you can see that in books in the in the New Testament. The parade example, of course, is Revelation. Now, I want to say that there's no indication in the scrolls of any New Testament books. So, whatever fertilization there was, it was a more indirect fertilization than any kind of direct fertilization. But in some ways, I think that's more important because, again, uh, a lot of Christian traditions, or I would just speak for mine growing up, there was no sense that the New Testament had a context. If anything, right. the context of the New Testament was just the Old Testament, and you just skipped over all this intertestamental period, and it it made the New Testament feel really unique. Like, it was saying really unique things because it was quite different than maybe the language and things of the Old Testament. But things like uh, these scrolls at Qumran and the Dead Sea Scrolls, and then, of course, other intertestamental things, um, Second Temple period literature really, I think, opened up for, I mean, scholarship, but then it's beginning to trickle down for everyday people by having people like uh, Sidney Crawford on podcast. Mm-hmm. But would you say then that the New Testament, while it's indirectly related and that sort of thing, we can see the connections of the context of the Dead Sea Scrolls and the New Testament where they would have come from the same world? Absolutely. Absolutely. They come from the same world. They have the same issues of dealing with the Roman Empire, uh, being a people living under foreign domination. They have questions about how to fulfill the law. You know, I think that we forget that when Jesus is debating with the Pharisees in the Gospels, it's often on questions of how do you fulfill the law? Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Is it not? These are questions that were that were animating all Jews at the time. And with the Dead Sea Scrolls, now we can see 
those kind of questions in real life, you know, not kind of filtered through through the Gospels, which are written after the time of Jesus. These are these are contemporary with Jesus. So yeah, I think what what freaked people out, uh, at least some people out, was how. Well, again, just to reiterate the point, how much of the New Testament breathes the same air as something that is outside of the New Testament, indeed, in many respects, prior to it, which raised the question, which you already answered, whether the New Testament sort of gets it from this community. And if I remember, I don't remember specifically the literature, Sydney, but I, I think some popular treatments of this sort of argued that the gospel was directly dependent on the Dead Sea community. But you're saying that's not the case, but there is still an indirect connection. Right. I think that the phrase, the air they breathed, is the right one. Because how could you not be concerned about living under the Roman Empire, right? The Roman Empire was everywhere. Everyone was concerned about that. You know, and of course, for the early Christians, it was the Roman Empire that crucified Jesus. And so, that was part of the reality for all of these groups and Mm -hmm. how to live that way. And what did it mean that God was allowing the Roman Empire to dominate the world? Right, right. And how do we handle that? And, And they both felt that, again, to use maybe the contemporary expression, they were living in the last days. Yes. It's it's happening or it's about to happen. And, um, you know, we have this righteous teacher or teacher of righteousness among the Dead Sea Scrolls, who I, I guess probably was their leader. In some way. We're not entirely we're not sure, sure but, yeah. but yeah. clearly a really important figure. I guess you don't right. call someone a righteous teacher unless you think right. that. Who also, I think, interpreted the texts for the community. Yes. Which is a very uh, Jesus-y thing. Exactly. And it, yeah. it mentions in Pesher Habakkuk, the teacher of righteousness's uh, <laughs> interpretive activity. And, um, you know, that teaching function, what does the text mean? How do we understand it? You know. And it's about us. Right. I mean, just to maybe not to be too on the nose, but I think tying to when Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I say to you. That is that what you're talking about in terms of that kind of somewhat interpretive function that that would maybe be the language of that we would might be maybe find in that world of saying, well, you've heard of this interpretation. I'm going to give you this other interpretation, and if you believe in my authority, you're going to kind of follow my lead in terms of how I'm reading these texts. Yes, exactly, exactly. And in fact, there's one passage in Matthew, and I don't have chapter and verse in my head, but Jared, you brought it to mind, that where Jesus says, you have heard it said, you shall love your friend and hate your enemy, but I say to you, love your enemies. And it's like, where did anybody say this? Well, the Dead Sea Scrolls say things like that, right? <laughs> you know, you love your fellow your fellow community member, but you you hate those outside the community. And how literally they took that is an open question, but certainly that's the language. So, mm-hmm. Well, I guess, you know, what we're looking at here, and, and we're, we're coming to the end of our time here, Sydney, unfortunately, but it seems like one of the big lessons that we gain, let's just limit it to the Christian world. Christians today becoming familiar with these discoveries that are now 75 years old that take us back, you know, over 2,000 years they are giving us a broader context within which to understand things like just the nature of the Bible and also for Christians, something of the context where maybe the gospel makes some sense. Yes. The Jesus uh, movement makes some sense in that world, even, even if it wasn't, you know, they're not duplicating each other. They're not consciously even aware of each other, probably, unless John the Baptist was in a scene. Which I don't, I think, I, he sounds like he was a pretty lone figure. And these Essenes, mm-hmm. they lived in community. 
That yeah. was really important to them, yeah, as it was to the early Christians. So that's another way in which you know we see that same kind of milieu. Right. But I think you're. I think that that's a very fair way to put it. And especially now in the world of Bible translations, you do see the biblical scrolls have a lot of influence in the latest update of the New Revised Standard Version, for example. A lot of emphasis was placed on scroll manuscript readings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right, right. Okay, well, um, let's leave with this. I'm going to put you on the spot. If you were talking to somebody who was just starting to study the Dead Sea Scrolls, what one bit of wisdom would you give them about the study of these scrolls and the importance of digging into it? Because people are listening to this. I'm, there's a reason for this. People are listening to this saying, oh, crap. <laughs> Another thing I have to learn that's going to ruin my life. So, how would you, as a professor, you know, and, and as a Christian, how might you just encourage them to move forward? I would say, first of all, find a good translation. Geza Vermesh's translation of the scrolls is very readable with good, uh, good introductions. And then sort of see how they feel. They, they will feel very alien at first, right? It's a different language. It's a different world. And to get a good introductory text is also very helpful. But to persevere, just to keep at it and learning, and I think it's, it's very rewarding to do that. But that right. it's really important. Good translation. Right. <laughs> All right, Sydney. Well, listen, thank you so, so much for taking the time to talk with us about, I think, what is a very central topic for Christians who want to educate themselves about Scripture and about their own faith. And uh, just a thousand thanks for you being here. Thank you. Well, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much. You just made it through another entire episode of The Bible for Normal People. Well done to you. And well done to everyone who supports us by rating the podcast, leaving us a review, or telling others about our show. We are especially grateful for our producers group who support us over on Patreon. They are the reason we are able to keep bringing podcasts and other content to you. So a big thanks to Philippa McLaughlin, Justin Brown, Marlon Wall, Lori Vocal, Miles Dance, Elia Vasquez, Patricia Schmidt, Elizabeth Petters, Rebecca DeFord, and Clyde Howell. If you would like to help support the podcast, you can head over to patreon.com slash the Bible for Normal People, where for as little as $3 a month, you can receive bonus material, be part of an online community, get course discounts, and much more. We couldn't do what we do without your support. Our show is produced by Stephanie Spate, audio engineer Dave Gerhardt, Creative Director, Tessa Stoltz. Marketing Director, Savannah Locke. And Web Developer, Nick Striegel. For Pete, Jared, and the entire Bible for Normal People team, thanks for listening. Wow.